If you were not able to grab a copy of the Scriptures, please do so now and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We'll be considering the passage this morning that was just read. Well, I wonder, have you ever been in a situation where you genuinely wondered if you might die of thirst? Ever been in that predicament before? Now, my parents tell me of the story of when I was two or three years old, and they took us, my sister and I, to an amusement park, and they lost track of me for a split second, and they turned around, and I was on all fours lapping up water from a puddle on the ground. And a random stranger poked my parents and said, I think your son is thirsty. And they quickly remedied the solution. Now, aside from that little childhood memory, I'm not sure I recall a moment where I was ever genuinely concerned that my life was on the line if I didn't have refreshing water soon. Well, there's a true and tragic story of a 29-year-old by the name of Dave Bouchot, I think is how you say his name, who tragically died of thirst in a Utah desert in 2007 while seeking to pass an, an expensive and a prestigious wilderness survival training course. A CBS News article from 2007 writes this. It says, pale and racked by cramps, his speech slurred. The 29-year-old New Jersey man was desperate for water and hallucinating so badly he mistook a tree for a person. And after going roughly 10 hours without a drink in the 100-plus degree heat, he finally dropped dead of thirst, face down in the dirt, less than 100 yards from the goal, a cave with a pool of water. Now, what made the tragedy all the greater, sadly, was the fact that Dave was accompanied by expert survival guides who had possession of emergency water on hand, a fact that Dave did not know, not wanting him to fail the course that was designed to push all the limits of, uh, to develop physical and mental toughness. The guides chose not to intervene, and this former Air Force airman would soon breathe his last even as life-giving water was just within reach, if only he had known to ask. John's Gospel recounts the memorable story of Jesus' interaction with a very thirsty person, a Samaritan woman who didn't even know just how thirsty she truly was. Not for physical water only, but for a water that forever satisfies, a water that Jesus alone can provide. And unlike those expert survival guides who witnessed Dave Bouchot die from dehydration, knowing they could have saved his life with life-giving water, Jesus comes to this woman's aid and extends to her true life-saving water, If only she'll stop hiding in the shadows of her sin and embrace the true worship of the true Messiah who is standing before her. This morning we'll consider the text that was just read as it unfolds in the following manner. We'll see it break down in this this way. We'll 
Note the introductory elements that somewhat set the stage for the narrative in the first six verses. We'll note the offer of life-giving water that Jesus extends to this woman. We'll then see the sting that comes from his soul-searching, honest probing of the very thing that is at the core of her pain. Lastly, then we'll see the joy of Christ exalting worship, followed by some concluding elements to the narrative in verses 39 through 42. The primary idea, perhaps the main thrust of this text this morning is this, because Jesus alone satisfies our spiritual thirst, He is to be worshipped supremely. Because Jesus alone satisfies our spiritual thirst. He is to be worshipped supremely. We see the setting of the stage of the context here in John's Gospel. So from the outset, the Apostle John in his Gospel aims to point his, point his readers to the only Gospel. It's not a gospel or another take on a number of different gospels, according to John. It is the gospel, according to the Apostle John. He tells, he, uh, tells toward the end of the book what his goal is, that even though others' signs and wonders were performed by Jesus, the only ones, the ones recorded in his book, his gospel, are for the express purpose, he writes, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, we might have life in His name. So if we set that goal within even the parameters of chapter 4, we might say that John's purpose of this text is so we might worship Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God who is the source of true satisfaction for every human soul. Among many other important themes, the beginning chapters of John's gospel engages repeatedly with the idea or the theme of sacred space. And that is to say, where and how can God's presence be accessed? Now, since the fall, humanity has attempted to work out that dilemma, haven't they? How can we as sinners talk or commune with God who is Himself holy, right? The story of the Tower of Babel makes it clear that our efforts, human efforts to come God's way, to make up some of the difference, never turns out well. No, God must come to us. We might even say we are utterly reliant on the Father seeking worshipers. In John's first chapter, he drives home the mind-blowing reality that the world-creating Word of God has taken up residence among sinful people. Jesus is the Word made flesh, and He has, as verse 14 conveys, He has now tabernacled among us so we might behold the Father's glory. In him. In John's second chapter, Jesus 
cleanses the earthly temple and, and refers to Himself as the true temple that will be raised up three days after His crucifixion, as He alludes. Herod's temple in Jerusalem that took 46 years to build would soon give way to the temple that is Jesus Himself. So as we remain attentive to how John is writing concerning God's presence through Christ on the earth, it's helpful to remember the nature of communion with God throughout the Old Testament. You might remember that wherever altars were set up, or later the tabernacle, and then even later the temple, these physical locations were places that, had been de- that God had declared Himself accessible to His people. Not forever or not without qualification as idolatry and wayward hearts would oftentimes uh, result in the removal of such a grace of God meeting with His people at a given spot. But there was reasonable probability that through sacrifice and if prayers offered in faith, God's presence would be known. I think the analogy of a phone booth booth is useful. Remember those things? Ancient relics of an old world? (laughs) The analogy of a phone book booth is useful. Blake Hearson, he writes this, he says, If a worshiper wanted assurance of contact with God under the old, old covenant, he had to find a phone booth to reach him. God is everywhere, of course, but because of the fall, He was not everywhere reachable. Although communication remained difficult, God had set up access points, or in our analogy, phone booths, where His worshipers could have reasonable assurance of reaching Him. Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman here has this debate very much in view. Where is God accessible to worshipers. Where and how can God's people commune with their Lord, their Creator? Jesus' answer would, in many ways, revolutionize the way God's people would forever understand the nature and location of true worship. But as we consider this background information in verses 1 through 6, and as your eyes uh, go there in the text now, we see that After John presents Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus in the previous chapter, so we're just on the heels of that in chapter 3, we're now told of a change of scenery in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So some questions as to what the exact particulars were of this move, but Jesus had no interest in people, the Pharisees in particular, of believing that his ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist were in any way competing with one another or at odds with one another. So it would appear, John indicates Jesus' choice for the time being to relocate temporarily from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. might be helpful to see on a map here the region that's, that's before us. So you have Judea down here, Samaria in between, and Galilee as their destination. So John continues in verse 4, and he says that he had to pass through Samaria. 
Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We don't know exactly why. Maybe the logistics of it all, as you can obviously see, the, the, clo- the quickest uh, path between two points is a straight line, usually. Now, because of the tensions that were raging between Jews and Samaritans, many strict Jews would do the Transjordanian route, and they would say, no way am I going to soil myself with the impurities of Samaria. I'm going to cross the Jordan here and make my way up this way. Maybe it was just the providence of God, that in God's providence, He knew, being submitted to the Father's will, that it, I, I have a specific call to go to Samaria and to eventually teach something incredibly needful concerning the nature of true worship. Whatever the case, Jesus indicates he must go through Samaria. It's really important for us to understand a couple more things about this deep, long-standing resentment that was mutual between the Jews and the Samaritans. They did not like one another at all. Their indignation with each other goes back much further than any class or racial animosity in our country today. From a Jewish point of view, the Samaritans were ethnic half-breeds. And with a corrupted Bible and with a corrupted form of worship, they received the disdain of every true Jew. Strict Jews, as we mentioned, wouldn't even step foot in Samaria. One author notes this, which is helpful for us. He says, the reason... For the hostility of the Jews to the Samaritans goes back a long way. When the Assyrians took Samaria captive, they deported large numbers of the inhabitants and replaced them with people from all over the empire. And you can read of this throughout 2 Kings 17. These people brought their own gods with them. So here, not only are they intermarrying with foreign nations, pagan nations, but now they're in a syncretistic way mixing the pure religion and practice of worship of Yahweh, but they added to the worship of Yahweh to their other practices. He says, for example, they acknowledged as sacred scripture only the Pentateuch, so only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Thus they cut themselves off from the riches of the Psalms and the prophets and other books. Their religion was also marked by a pronounced bitterness toward the Jews when the Jews returned from exile in Babylon, the Samaritans offered to help them rebuild their temple, but their offer was refused, as Ezra 4 details. This naturally engendered just a great bitterness. And one might have expected that the Jews would have appreciated the fact that the Samaritans worshipped the same God as they did, but it did not work out this way. The Samaritans refused to worship at Jerusalem preferring their own temple built on Mount Gerizim. And when this was burned by the Jews in 128 B.C., relations between the two groups worsened. It's quite a past, quite a history. Now, was Jesus aware of this ethnic disgust and animosity? Of course he was. But it did not deter him from underscoring the true nature of worship. So Jesus enters Samaria now and lands in a town called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, close to Jacob's well. So verse 6 tells us that Jesus is weary from his journey. 
He's sitting beside the well at about the sixth hour of the day. So at approximately noon. So here we find Jesus tired, legitimately tired, and thirsty, probably dirty, weary. And the sun's at its peak, the sixth hour of the day. And now is when he decides to draw an unlikely person to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we see here Jesus' offer of life-giving water, verses 7 through 15. So what happens next would have scandalized someone like Nicodemus from chapter 3. Jesus' previous dialogue, who was an Orthodox Jew who would have seen only three strikes against this woman. He would have seen she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, and she is a sexual sinner. Three strikes, she's out. In fact, Jesus could not give us a greater contrast between chapters 3 and 4 of his gospel. Even though Nicodemus was a man, he was a respected man in a position of authority, with great theological knowledge. And the Samaritan was a woman whom no one respected, it would seem, and no position of authority, and probably lacking in any real knowledge of theology, just a mixture, hodgepodge of folk concepts and ideas. But the solution for both is the same. They need Jesus. In this situation, Jesus is not afraid of being considered ritually defiled by using the Samaritan woman's bucket or ladle or whatever it were uh, available to him, the utensils to draw forth water. He is thirsty, but he's also legitimately invested in this woman's apprehension of spiritual things. After the woman probably drops the bucket in disbelief, Verse 9 details her shock that a Jewish man would speak to her so directly. But Jesus responds, If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Similar to the analogy of Dave Bouchot at the beginning. If only he would have known, he would have asked, right? Perhaps Jesus has in mind the prophet Jeremiah's stinging indictment of Israel in Jeremiah 2 where he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves that are broken cisterns that can hold no water. So perhaps with this text in view as a backdrop, Jesus' love for quoting the prophets and thinking and marinating on their messages, Jesus is saying, Sister, if you only knew who I was and the gift of eternal life that I freely give, wouldn't you be asking me for such water? She still only sees this thirsty, tired Jewish traveler in front of her. So verses 11 and 12 detail the woman trying to process Jesus' words still in this purely practical way. She's thinking, sir, 
you know, the sun must really be getting to you because you're not quite thinking normally here, right? Uh, you've got to be kidding me. This well is probably 100 feet deep or so. How do you honestly expect to get the living water that you apparently so desperately need without proper tools? What are you thinking? So she brings up the patriarch Jacob, who in their tradition said, dug that particular well, drank from that well, and nourished others from that well. And almost in jest or as this absurd comparison, she asked Jesus if he thinks he's greater than Jacob. Because even Jacob couldn't snap his fingers and get living water, right? He had to work for it. The woman is clearly missing the point of Jesus' words. But Jesus, he doesn't cast her off. He doesn't dismiss her as just another simple-minded, foolish, hard-hearted Samaritan. No, he persists patiently by clarifying. Verses 13 through 15 reads, But Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here Jesus is offering the fulfillment of the prophets Isaiah's predictions. That on the day of God's salvation, God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation with joy, Isaiah 12 says. They will neither hunger nor thirst, Isaiah writes in chapter 49. And the pouring out of God's Spirit will be like pouring water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, Isaiah 44. And indeed, Isaiah promises in chapter 55 that God will make an everlasting covenant with all peoples and nations that do not know the Lord, inviting them to come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters that your soul may live, Isaiah says. Even in the Samaritan's own edited version of the Pentateuch, their Messiah-type figure, uh, Taheb, is said to have water flowing from his buckets. But still, the woman is only thinking on a natural, practical level, missing the point altogether. So she says in verse 15, Well, sir, give me this water. Sign me up. She's maybe putting a few things together and thinking maybe this guy is special. I want to get in on the super juice. You know, I want some of this so that I will not be thirsty and I have to come draw water from this well. And with Hosea-like love, Jesus has sought out a Gomer-like woman in a foreign land in order to offer her the life-giving water He alone provides. But such an extraordinary gift demands the awareness of her extraordinary need. So this is what Jesus now intentionally draws out, beginning in verse 16, where we see the sting of soul-searching honesty. Perhaps Jesus sensed that since this woman had missed the point thus far at nearly every turn, 
it was time to just go straight for the heart. Jesus asked her to call her husband. She says she does not have one. Dodge that bullet. Maybe she's thinking. Technically, you're spot on, is the essence of Jesus' kind response before he reveals that he knows not only her past, but her present sin. She's had five husbands, all presumably either died or divorced, and the man she's living with, sleeping with now, is not her husband. And in no laws of the day was there ever any record of any sort of common law understanding that to live with someone who was not publicly within the community recognized as a husband was somehow okay. So it is on solid ground that we can conclude that this was an immoral relationship that she was in. Contrary to a lot of interesting modern writing that I read a bit on this week. Even as he carefully lets her know that he's aware of her sinful past, the way that Jesus dialogues with this woman is worth noting. He shows gentleness. Classic Jesus. Tough, yet tender. Speaking the truth, but doing so in love. Like the sting of peroxide on a fresh wound, that initial sting hurts, but the effect is healing. It's as if Jesus just levels with her. Sister, take off the mask. Stop the show. Lose the act. I know you. I know who you are. I know what your life has been like. All of it. But my offer remains. Living water and eternal life is for people like you. It's a beautiful moment. And no doubt there's some of us in the room this morning that are probably thinking, oh, sheesh, that's me. That's me as well. I'm just like that woman. I got a past, too, that I'm not proud of. And I live my life trying to convince my own conscience and other people and even God that it all never happened, or it's just no big deal. It's just no big deal. Just out of sight, out of mind. But life in the shadows of our sin is always misery. The psalmist, David, will often say it's as if our bones are rotting within us. It really, it's self-deception. And it's like a highly effective quicksand that Satan uses to sink a great many people. And what if Jesus were to look you and me in the eyes and to have the very same conversation? To tell you he knows all. He knows it all. All your darkest, deepest patterns of sin with specificity. Not just in general. No whitewashing. With specificity as he does with the woman here. And still, he calls you to taste 
of living water. Would you believe that such mercy was possible? Well, with Jesus, and with Jesus alone, it is. With Jesus' love for the Samaritan woman, the story is not over. Nor is the theology training session for the day that she's in the middle of. In verses 19 through 26, we then see Jesus teaching concerning the essence of true worship. He's not done. Where we see the joy of Christ exalting worship. Realizing the secrets of her heart had just been exposed, the woman admits Jesus must be some kind of a special prophet. Whether she now believes that he is the prophet of prophets, we do not know. But she knows he cannot be fooled. At least knows that. And whatever her motives are, she quickly shifts the topic of discussion. Perhaps she wants to get that uncomfortable spotlight of her deepest pain and guilt off her. Maybe that's her motivation. Or maybe she's conceded that, well, he knows everything now. Why don't I prove this guy, see if he's really the real deal, and ask him the raging front and center, front burner, theological squabble of the day to really put out my fleece as to whether he is the prophet of prophets. Whatever the case, she asked Jesus in verse 20 to settle this really big, important debate concerning the true location of genuine worship. Or to borrow our analogy from earlier, which phone booth truly gets through to the switchboard of heaven? Was the place of true worship Mount Gerizim? as her Samaritan forefathers had taught her? Or was the place of true worship Jerusalem, as the Jews maintained? Jesus begins his response in verse 21. Believe me, woman, an hour is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So surprisingly, Jesus says both locations will soon lose significance when Jesus' earthly ministry is fulfilled. So in a sense, the very way you think about the phone booth is changing. The essence of communion with God is about to receive a transformative upgrade. And while saying this, he, makes, he still makes an important point in verse 22. Where he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. So, as best we can understand, because the Samaritans had rejected so much of the self-revelation of God to his people, they worship what they do not know, for salvation is still from the Jews. So, even though sinful and hypocritical and corrupted as they were, even to the point of crucifying Christ. The Jews were nevertheless the recipients of God's covenantal promises and therefore custodians of the future hope of a Messiah, as the Scriptures foretold. Verses 23 and 24 then now provide this climax and the most memorable of conclusions to Jesus' words to this Samaritan woman. He says, The hour is coming and is now here. 
escalating, ratcheting up the intensity. It's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So not only is the hour coming, but it's now here, Jesus says. The dawning age of new covenant worship is in some sense already begun and will soon be complete in Jesus' atoning death and resurrection and exaltation. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. Some want to understand this as the human spirit. So in, in, in essence, with all of our human spirit and in accord with truth. But in light of how verse 24 seems to bring this additional clarity on verse 23, it seems to be a clear reference to the Spirit of God who always leads us into all truth. So we can rightly say from this text that true worship is Trinitarian worship, where the Father is worshipped through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. As D.A. Carson helps us out with this phrase, he says, This God who is spirit can be worshipped only in spirit and truth. Both in verse 23 and verse 24, the one preposition in governs both nouns. There uh, There are not two separable characteristics of the worship that must be offered. It must be in spirit and truth. It comes as a package. Spirit and truth. All too often, these terms live in opposing end zones from each other, with churches finding comfort with one or the other. We're a all Holy Spirit kind of people, <laughs> or we're a all truth kind of people. The text does not know that division. Indeed, God does not know that kind of division. May God help us to be zealous worshipers, fully dependent on God's Spirit, to be at work among us while we live and breathe in the truth of God as revealed in Christ and in the Scriptures. Let's not miss, though, that stunning phrase. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Just as Jesus sought out an unlikely candidate for this timeless treatise on the nature of true worship. He builds His kingdom today in the unlikeliest of places and in the most unsuspecting of ways. Our North American infatuation with marketing seeps into our bloodstream probably more often than we know. And we can so often view Christ's church as a business Or if we just follow the right strategies and methods and read the right books, we'll fill the seats and enjoy soaring budgets and all will be well. Well, may the Lord deliver us from that mindset and in exchange humbly extend the living water of Christ where the need is greatest. By way of illustration, the the church that we just sent a ministry team to down in Florida was in a pretty rough area pretty needy area. The pastor down there told us of all these large churches in the area looking to plant churches all around and to extend their footprint all throughout the city, no one comes here. 
we're not viable. We're not going to be successful. Jesus would say otherwise, I think. Jesus' exchange with the woman concludes in verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we can't know exactly how much this woman is catching or where all the the pennies are falling in terms of apprehension of what Jesus is saying or at what precise moment in the text things are clicking. But it's clear that her hope now is in a coming Messiah who will reveal all things. And Jesus is done with ambiguity, it would appear. He tells her she's looking at the one she's talking about. And he has indeed told her all she needed to know. Now we read the conclusion of the story in verses 39 through 42. So, after a slight sidebar that would be important to consider, but for sake of time, we will jump down to sort of the concluding elements of the narrative. We read in verse 39, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. When we think in terms of how our response should look to this text, certainly it is wide-ranging and myriad in its application. But a few handles to steer our response to the text this morning. First of all, we're led to see the nature, the reality of transformed desires. The very nature of Jesus' appeal to the Samaritan woman was grounded in the hope that drinking living water would eradicate thirst, right? Even on a, on a physical level, she was like, I'm down for that. I'm up for that. Let's do it, right? Everyone understands the discomfort of physical thirst. But not everyone, like the Samaritan woman, understands the pain of spiritual thirst. So while the Christian life is an ongoing battle to put to death the deeds of the body and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, we are a people who boldly declare nevertheless that we are satisfied in Christ. We have found Him, as we sung during the offertory, Hallelujah! I have found Him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through His blood, I now am saved. Hallelujah! I have found Him. Right. We are no longer dominated as God's people by the fleeting pleasures of sin that let us down and never deliver. We are categorically now people with renewed affections 
who love to speak of Jesus, who love to sing and to pray to Jesus, to love to evangelize and to speak of and on behalf of Jesus, to minister for Jesus, and on and on, knowing He has looked us individually in the eyes, as it were, and assured us that He knows our deepest sins and remains steadfast in His love for us. What a thought. You know the state of your heart better than anyone else. Certainly the Lord knows it ultimately. Where is it? Is it not a comfort that the Son of God could stare into the eyes of an immoral woman and say, I want you, people like you, that's who I'm looking for, to glorify my name and to spread my kingdom till I return again. Messed up sinners. They're the ones who drink the best of living water. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Drink deeply from His rivers of delight. Delight yourselves also in the Lord and find in the Savior your soul's deepest satisfaction. Another proper response to the text is transformed worship. Now, although Jesus spoke to the fading significance of physical locations like Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem as appropriate centers of worship, the New Testament is clear that when God's people assemble in any time and space, they measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians. And consequently, as Ephesians 2 states, for through Him, that is Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father, So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Such beautiful Trinitarian language. How beautifully Paul and his words here build on Jesus' words in John 4. While the Spirit has always been a part of true worship in every age, let us not make that mistake. The new element would be the fact that the Spirit no longer self-limits Himself to particular places or specific geographical locations. In other words, phone booths. Now God's assembled people, the church, are themselves in the place where God's Spirit resides and where the saints offer spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise in the triune name. So in the gift of public worship, as we are gathered here this morning, Delight in the fact that Christ Himself has bought each and every one of these gatherings. Do not squander them. Like the woman at the well who needed help to see with renewed spiritual eyes. 
learn to see this gathering each Lord's Day from a renewed perspective. God, help us approach worship with a renewed awe for the sacred space that this gathering represents before the face of God in and through the person of Christ. And lastly, we see in the end of this narrative what it looks like the impact upon the community of the redeemed, a transformed community. Just as the overspill of joy from the Samaritan woman was uncontainable, right? So is the effect on every person who truly understands the power of Christ's deliverance. And whether you are a young person or a Christian who has known the Lord for many, many decades, true worshipers make disciples of other worshipers as their joy spills forth in a contagious manner. As you are observed by others within this assembly, is it clear that you delight in worshiping Christ in the assembly as well as, and perhaps built upon, a credible worship in all corners of life? And will you, by God's grace, be increasingly more and more committed to building up your brothers and sisters who struggle to treasure Christ above all? Perhaps you, are, you have wrongly concluded that the true worship Jesus speaks of is meant to teach us that gatherings in general or as a whole are unnecessary and always devolve into just selfish dens of hypocrites. Perhaps this interpretation has led some to justify their autonomous self-interest in being a Lone Ranger Christian, content with freeloading the benefits of the church when it's convenient, but never rooting in, committing with Christ-like sacrificial love for His people. May God's Spirit help us see the value of covenantal Christian relationships with one another as we purpose to display God's glory in the midst of a transformed community of worshipers. Because Jesus alone satisfies our spiritual thirst, He is to be worshipped supremely above all things. Let us pray. Our Lord, I ask that for those in despair over their sin this morning, revive an awareness of the goodness of Jesus. For those hiding in the shadows of sin, would you call them forth by your grace into the light of Christ? For those preoccupied with drinking from the broken cisterns of this world, forgive them and lead them to the true fountain of delight. For those disinterested in spiritual things altogether, would your spirit persist in kindly drawing them to the life-giving worship of God. For those more like Nicodemus than the Samaritan woman here this morning, would you humble them of pride and rid them of the, the game that has become theological knowledge. For those of us who have turned cold in our passion for the lost, Help us to remember that the Father 
is seeking worshipers in unlikely places and among the hardest of hearts. May this not deter our resolve, but rather fuel it. Father, would you transform our desires, our worship, and our community with one another so we may together more faithfully worship Christ in spirit and in truth to the glory of the Father. Amen.